Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. We've been talking uh, for the last six weeks about a, a personal God. Not, not the kind of little personal God that, you know, you can put in your shirt pocket and pull out when you want to and, you know, rub your hands together and he'll let you make a wish. I'm not, I'm not talking about a personal God that you've created in your own image. Uh, that, you know, will never say anything hard to you about your behavior or your actions. I'm not talking about that kind of make-believe fairy God. I'm talking about the God of all creation, God of the universe, who, who wants to be personal and intimate with you. And that, that God has declared that he is doing something in all of his children that he's deeply passionate about. This is, I believe, just steeply on the heart of God. And he has declared he is going to make it happen for you. If you're, if you're in Jesus and Jesus is in you, God the Father has said, I'm making this happen. I'm going to do it. We read about it last, last week when we were looking in Romans. Now, Romans is not going to be our, our focal passage today. That's going to be 1 Peter. If you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, you can go ahead and, and launch over there. But I want to go back and read that passage from, from Romans 8 to you because it, it really is what kind of set my, my mind to thinking towards this today. It says this, and when, and we know, this is verse 28, Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who have, are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to con, be conformed to the image of his son. G God knew who you are. He knows you. He knew that you were going to choose him as he chose you first. And he knew that he was going to set about the business of conforming you to the image of his beloved son. He's changing you. He's transforming you. He is setting you apart from the world. He is making you holy. He's perfecting all of us, his, his children. So I think one of the questions that we really need to ask ourselves a lot is, what does it look like for me to be the image of Jesus? What, what does that actually look like for me? Another, I think, a question maybe that needs to be asked before that is, how is it possible, how could it happen that my sin-stained, broken, messed up life could in any way begin to look a little bit more like Jesus and a little bit more like Jesus? Because that's what God says he's doing. He says, that's what he said in Romans 8, 29. That's what he's doing. And the Bible clearly teaches... That when we come to trust in Christ, that our lives are more than just, you know, just turning over a new leaf. It, it's, it's not just about that. It's just not some, you know, uh, you know self-help kind of movement and moment. Much, much more is happening. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that God raised us from death to life with Christ Jesus and he gave us a place beside Christ in heaven. I don't know if you think of yourself that way, but you have been given a place right beside Jesus in heaven. 
You have a place there right beside Jesus in heaven. Philippians 3 tells us, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he says, I want you to know Christ. He says, I want to know him. And, I, and, and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in, in his death. He, he's saying the, the resurrection power of Jesus, I want to experience it. He's saying God has said I can experience the resurrection power flowing into my life. I want to experience that. Friends, that is intimacy. To, to, to think of God bringing his power that raised Jesus from the dead into your life. That's personal. That's intimate. That's not some kind of distant experience to have that. You know, and so I think we, we got to ask ourselves some, some questions here. What kind of God would do such things? What kind of creator God would choose to empower my life with that resurrection power. And what does a life empowered by that actually look like? Because it says that everyone who follows him, we got to come to grips with this reality that God has intended. He's predestined it to conform us to the image of Jesus. And friends, Jesus was and is holy. Nobody else like him. And God is shaping us into that. God is perfecting us. He's, he's sanctifying us into the image of his beloved son so that you and I will also be holy. Perfected, beloved children of our holy God. Because we're called to be holy. That is a very prominent theme in both, both Testaments, Old and New Testament. So if you have your Bibles and you haven't opened them yet, I hope you will, to, to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to look at verse 15 with me to start with. Peter writes these words, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Now, this is a difficult concept to wrap our minds around in the culture in which we live. You know, if you start throwing the words like sin and holiness around out in our culture today, um, you almost need to be doing it satirically, our world thinks. You know, we, we talk about things like, you know, um, sinful chocolate. That, that's the kind of the way that we think in terms of sin and holiness, those kinds of things. You know, it, it, almost, it almost has to be done comedically in our contemporary society or people get really upset. You know, if they think for a moment that you're actually taking those words seriously instead of satirically, they get, they get the, the hair on the backs of their neck stands up. They want to fight because they don't take it seriously. But... My friends, God has called us as his followers to take this, this idea of holiness very seriously. And so there's some fundamental questions that I think we need to ask about this idea of holiness. First of all, what is it? What is holiness? And then how does it, how does it grow? How does it find a place in my life? And how is it possible? How do I live that out? Well, I want to look back again at verses 15 and 16 this time. It says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now again, when you think of holiness in our culture, most people's minds run to morality. Most people's minds run to behavior. That holiness is about my behavior pretty much only. That it's about, you know, morality. And so people, you know, people with a, a bit of a faith background may run to think about the Ten Commandments. Where it tells us how to live as a reflection of God. That, you know, we should be faithful and not lie or commit adultery because our God is faithful. 
You know, we should be people who love and the way that God loves is a certain way and here's what love looks like for us. We shouldn't steal from others or, or kill. That's an expression of love. You know, almost any time you would hear this idea of holiness, it would probably be attached to moral living, some kind of moral code. And that's not a bad thing. It's a, it's a good thing because certainly holiness has a component about that. But our personal God, I believe, wants us to understand that yes, it's that, but it is so much more. So, so very, very much more. And he wants us to grab, wrap our minds around this. So Peter quotes from Leviticus chapter 11. That's where Peter reaches back into Leviticus, which quite frankly, Peter quoting Leviticus is very ironic. I'll show you that in a few minutes. But he reaches back to Leviticus chapter 11 and says, Be holy because I'm holy. He's trying to teach New Testament believers about, about holiness. And that, that, that phrase is used four or five times um, in Leviticus. And it's, it's important to understand. Now, here's the difference between Leviticus and let's say like um, Exodus and Deuteronomy. Exodus and Deuteronomy give us kind of the, 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 the commands to live by. To pursue holiness. When you get to Leviticus and you start reading Leviticus, you start seeing that God says things can be holy. You know, the, in, in Leviticus, there's, there's like, there's holy tables. There's, for, for, where's Guy? For Guy, there's holy flatware. You know? There, there are holy utensils. There, there's, you know, all kinds of things are able to become holy. Things are called holy. Uh, a table can, can be holy. Now, does, does that mean moral? Can, can you have a moral table? It, there's got to be more to it than that. I mean, because if you could have a moral table, that, that would mean you could have an immoral table. You know, and how many of you are thinking, well, when I go to lunch today, I'm going to see if I can get me, myself seated at one of them there immoral tables. You know, we, we, we don't, tables aren't immoral. So there's something bigger to this holiness thing than just morality and, and, and behavior. You know, there's something much more. In, in the Hebrew language, the word about holiness, the, the root word in there, is really about being separated, being set apart. And so for, for God to self-describe in the scriptures as holy is perfect. I mean, it's a perfect description of God. There's nobody else like him. Not another being like him. He's set apart. He's separate. Absolutely no one or anything like him at all. And that's, that's a huge part of what holy means. And so for a table to be holy means it's been, it's been set apart. And it's been set apart for the exclusive use of God or for the worship. Worship of God. Now, how do you make a table holy? When you, let's say you decide, okay, if a table can be holy, I want me one of them, there are holy tables in my house. Do you go to your house and you start reading the Ten Commandments to your table? Is that how you make your table holy? You know, do you read, you know, do you read the Sermon on the Mount? Get your table holy? No. You would have to literally, in the Old Testament especially, you would have to take your table and you would have to give it to the priests who would then make it holy by setting it apart to only be used only exclusively for the worship of God. Then that table could, could be made holy in the presence of God. So right here when we, when we see Peter quoting Leviticus, 
with that context, we start saying there's something interesting going on. I want to read you one of the commentators I read about this idea of, of Peter reaching back to Leviticus 11, thinking about holiness. He says, of course, to be holy means moral behavior. But these words in, in Leviticus 11 that Peter quotes are not given in the context of moral commands and prohibitions to people, but in the context of ceremonial restrictions dealing with clean and unclean things. For belonging to God, living on his terms, reserving ourselves for him alone, delighting in him, obeying him, honoring him, these are more fundamental than specific questions of obedience and morality. Now that's kind of a big definition of, of what that, this idea of holiness means. But for us to be holy, Joe's simple you know, definition, simplifying, that simply means this. To be holy means to belong to God. It just simply means to belong to God. At its core, it means to belong to God. Now, there are some implications about that that we need to unpack for us to be able to say, I belong to God. We need to understand that true holiness is intensely personal. True holiness is an intensely personal matter. Let me see if I can help you grab hold of that. It is possible for someone to become a moral person out of a sense of duty. You and I can pursue morality maybe because it makes you feel good about yourself. Or you could pursue morality um, to fill, fulfill some social obligation like maybe, maybe uh, you know, family, external pressure or something like that. Or, or maybe, maybe you want to pursue morality because you're a pragma pragmatist. And, you know, you've, you've heard things people say like, you know, honesty is the best policy. So you pursue honesty because it's practically better for you, you know. Or you think I'm, I'm going to be truthful and, and moral because, you know, you know that if, if you're being truthful and moral, there's not a lot to be caught doing. You know, so you, you won't get caught. Maybe you won't get sued. There, there's some, you know, benefits of that. So you decide, I'm going to live morally because I'm a pragmatist. It's just a practical application. But when you think about living, pursuing that kind of, you know, that content of holiness that has to do with morality. If you're living that way, why are you choosing holiness? Because you're selfish. That, that pursuit of holiness is all about who? Just about me. Has nothing to do with God. So it's not really, has nothing to do with being holy. Because it has nothing to do with God. You know? There are, uh, there are people in our lives that, you know, we can, we could think about who you and I could actually say, I, they have claims on me. You know, it, for instance, in my life, uh, my wife Kathy has claims on me. I have claims on her. Uh, and it's a claim for, for our love and our attention, our affection that, that nobody else has. Our, our kids would probably kind of fall into that second. Our grandkids, well, maybe our grandkids then our kids. Huh? <laughs> I need to think about that a little more. But you, 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 there are certain people in your life who your love for them and their love for you wraps into a, a certain kind of claim on you. you. You have a belonging to them. And because you belong to them, there are certain things that you probably no longer do or you do that you don't want to do simply because of them. 
You do it for them because your love for them is, is so great. Because you belong to them. You re, you're reserving that part of your life for them. You do it because you want to and you, and you need to is what it becomes because of, of love. And that, that's intensely personal. That doesn't happen with everybody you meet. It doesn't happen with most people. It won't even happen with many of your friends at that level. Because there's not that same level of love. So experiencing the holiness that God has for you has to be an intensely personal thing. Let me see if I can give you a, another illustration. Uh, yesterday, one of the, the experiences that we had was there were several single moms who came in for food. Moms who, uh, some were struggling financially. And they love their kids. And they're, you know, they're investing their life in their kids. And so I got to thinking about this. Um, what if there was a mom who, a single mom, loved her child. And, and let's say this mom, uh, she was unable to pursue an education and get a good job. So she had to work multiple jobs uh, just to, to provide for, for her child. And she worked her fingers to the bones to, to provide for her child in such a way that she was able to send this son of hers, we'll, we'll make it a son, to college. And was able to pay his way to college, so he got out of college debt free. And so he gets out of college, and he gets a good job, and he starts his job. And, um, and one day, this guy, he calls his mom up, and he says, Hey, mom, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about you some, and I've been thinking about when I was little, you, you tried your best to teach me to be, you know, an honorable man, and you told me to always care for the poor. And you told me, you know, always work hard, always be truthful. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And mom, I've made a decision. I've become that man. I, I'm, I'm that man. And so I've decided I no longer need you in my life. Mom, I'm, I'll send you a Christmas card. And I'll probably call you on Mother's Day. But we're going to have to limit it out about 10 minutes. You know. Um, and, but mom, I'm going to go on. I'm, I'm going to continue to be this, this man that you raised me to be. This moral man. This good man. So that should be enough. How many of you would look at that son and just applaud him? How many of you would want to take him to the woodshed, as my grandfather would say? <laughs> a, couple of, a couple of mama hands went up right then, you know? The kind of relationship in which you're going to experience the holiness of God flowing through your life is personal that way. God doesn't just give you rules and commands to make you moral. That's a part of who he wants to draw you into a relationship of being. Because holiness is an extremely, deeply, richly personal experience. And God has that planned for you, but so often that's how we treat him. We, we begin pursuing life in him, but only when it's pragmatic for us, you know. And that's kind of like that son that just simply says, God, I don't really want the relationship. I just want the good stuff. You know, that I can just take on and run, run from here. See, for anyone to say, I can be holy. You know, there are people in our culture who will tell you, you know, because they equate holiness with morality, who will tell you, I can be just as holy as you Christians, some of you Christians, because they think it's only about morality. And, and quite frankly, out in our world today, there are some people who live morally by higher standards than Christians do. And it actually tarnishes the reputation of Jesus, I believe. 
And so there are people who, who do that, you know. Someone looks and, and thinks that that's what, you know, holiness is about. But it's not just about the behavior. It's intensely personal. You have to be connected to God. Second thing that's true about holiness is holiness has to be applied to all of life. It's not, it's not a piece of the pie. It's not a nook or a cranny or a crevice. It's, it's the whole of life. Let me see if I can get you on this. If when you think of holiness for just a moment, what would you say is the opposite of holiness? The opposite of holiness is selfishness. The opposite of holiness is, it, it, it's not unholy, it, it's being self-centered. If holiness means belonging, the opposite of holiness would be living for the self. And so, in the scriptures we see God giving us directions, if you want to call them practices and principles of holy living. And one of the things that's true is the longer that you live for God, your life will be transformed. But the longer that you live for self and not for God, life is going to be destructive. Let me see. Here's a passage of scripture that really points out how important this is. 1 Corinthians 6 says this. You are not your own. You're not your own. You have been bought with a price. You were bought with a great price. You're the recipient of, of free grace flowing through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, you're not to live for your own sake. You're to live for God's sake, for His purposes, for, for others. Because that's His design. Now, I told you earlier, it's fascinating that Peter reaches back to Leviticus to try to think about what holy living looks like. Because if you, if you go back and you study the book of Acts, when, Peter, when Peter's ministry was just launching, okay, one of the, the foundations of Peter's ministry when he first starts ministering to Gentiles is this. I'm a Jew. Us Jews, we have certain beliefs about how we wash your hands about the clothes we wear and the food we eat. And if I'm going to have anything to do with you Gentiles that are now Christians, you're going to have to start living like me. Well, you remember the woodshed we talked about a moment ago? God took Peter to the woodshed on a roof one day. And he said, no. In Christ, all of those ceremonial laws of cleansing are fulfilled. I have made you clean through Christ. It's the only way. No other way for you to be made holy and, and, and clean is, is through Christ. It's not about the rules and, and keeping the ceremonial law anymore. And he corrects Peter's thinking there. He gives him this great vision and says that it's not it, Peter. I have a better way. And it's really mind-blowing then that Peter would reach back to Leviticus, this, this book in the Bible that's all about ceremonial law, and use that as the launching place to describe holiness. To tell us what, what holiness is about. I believe he does that because the principle of true holiness is rooted there. It's not just about moral living. You know, it's just not only about the commands. They work in there and they're a part of it. But there's so much more. For instance, holiness goes outside so many times of the regulations of the scripture. There was a day, I believe, that Paul was kind of reflecting on that. You know, is there, is there one of the Ten Commandments, do, do any of the Ten Commandments tell you how to fully engage and behave at work? No. Now, there's a commandment about rest, 
And in that commandment it tells us you shall labor six days and on the seventh day rest. But it doesn't tell you what to do with your work. So Paul is thinking about that one day I believe. And he's writing to the church at Ephesus to help them grasp this principle. This holiness principle. And he says this. He says bond servants obey your earthly masters with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. The message translated it this way. Don't just do what you have to do to get by, but do it heartily as Christ's servant. Here's what Paul does. Paul says when you're doing your daily job, don't work for your boss. That's what he means when he says, don't just give it eye service. Don't just work in such a way that you're only doing good when somebody's watching you. Don't do that. He's also talking here about don't do it just for yourself. Don't, don't work, don't have a work ethic that's just rooted to making more money and more money. He's saying do your work so that God is honored and pleased in you. Work as if you're working for the Lord. Then your main motivation isn't something that could one day be crushed. Because all you're doing is you're working to please the Lord. You're working to say, God, I want my gifts at work to be about building others up. I want to I be a, a, a stellar employee. I want to I work with excellence doing the tasks that are given to me. But I want to go beyond that. I want to I be more than that. I want to work as unto being holy. And here's the deal. When you start working as unto the Lord, working conscientiously comes naturally. Working more diligently, working cheerfully can actually happen. Because you're working unto the Lord. Because you're not, you're, you're, live, you're not living and dying based on your, your boss's attitude. You're not living and dying based on, you know, am I making more? Am I making more? You're, you're, you're living and working for God. And it transforms everything. And, and what, what Paul was trying to get the church to understand is you can apply that everywhere. That is a, that's the practice of holiness. It can be applied to every area of life, even where there's no moral code, even there when there's no specific command. See, the reason Peter reaches back into Leviticus is because back there in Leviticus, holiness has a much bigger definition. It's much, much more expansive. That's what holiness is. So how, how, do, how do we grow how do we experience growth in holiness? There are three places in our lives that I believe we can see holiness growing in us. And Peter directs us there. And I want us to take a moment and do that. First of all, it's in our mind. I'm going to take a drink. Just pause for just a second, okay? <clears throat> it's in our mind. Look at this passage. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13 says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's, I want you to think with me about this. Obviously, he's talking about something that we do with our thinkers. Okay, something we're, we're thinking on. And it's, there's two interesting words here. One is sober, this idea of being sober-minded. And being sober-minded doesn't have to do with, you know, alcohol or anything like that. Being sober-minded has to do with being extremely reflective. Has to do with thinking deeply. Has to do with kind of having a, a mind like a scholar where you're, you're going to footnote things and you're going you're to make sure that you're using the right language here and you're using proper definition. It's real intensive thought. You're thinking deeply to be sober-minded. 
Then there's that, that next phrase that, that talks about this action. How many of you remember the King James language for this verse? You gird up the loins of your mind. Isn't that a beautiful description? Now some of you are saying, huh? In the day this was written, pretty much everybody wore a robe. And so in order for them to engage in any kind of action, activity, they would have to gird up, pull up, make kind of girdle, if you will, their robe. So they would literally pull their robe up, they would tuck it in their belt. Then they could run. Or they could, you know, get to work, you know, pretty frantically if they needed to. But it was this idea of moving into action. <clears throat> and this is the, 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 the imagery that Peter's using here for our minds. Your mind has to be engaged for action. It's about how, what you're going to step into next. One of the things I hope you have figured out around here that we believe in deeply is that this book is not to be a relic. It's not to be something that maybe you just read and think, oh, that's so sweet. It, it should cause you to act. If you have your worksheet out, turn it over to the back. What are the first two questions? They're on the back page. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? Action. If, you're, if you've been in one of our soaping groups, if you've been trained in how to soap, S stands for what? Scripture. O stands for observe what you've just read in the Scripture. A is what? Apply. Act. What am I going to do about it? If you've been in one of our huddles and you've been exposed to the learning circle, you know it all is all that you're experiencing in your relationship and hearing from God. is not so you can sit and soak, but so that you will act. Holiness is active living in your faith. There's a lot of movement if you're living out the holiness. That's what Paul was trying to say in that passage in Ephesians about work. There's going to be, there's going to be some movement. There's going to be some action. And you've got to think about it. You've got to think deeply about it. But then you have to be thinking always towards some type of activity. Something changing in you. One of the ways that, that Peter in this passage, verse 13, expresses that, and he said, one of the things you ought to do is this. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Set, set your hope. And he's really, he's talking, this is in the context of him talking about kind of end times thing, about the day that Jesus is going to come back and be revealed completely. And what it's saying here is that you and I should live in a certain way. There are implications if you're setting your hope on that. And all throughout scripture it talks about followers of Jesus don't need to be anxious. That's what our hope needs to be up here. Knowing this. Living in this. as our reality. That's what our setting our hope is. Paul says to the church in Philippi in chapter 4 he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See, Paul says that we should have the peace of God in our heart. From the understanding that we have. That, that peace ought to dwell. He says, let that peace that you have guard your heart. And then in verse 18, he closes that section of Scripture out by saying, think about these things. You and I have to think deeply about these things. And that deep thinking needs to lead us to kind of some action. Peter's saying that action ought to be like hope, man. We, we ought to think in such a way that we're filled with hope. That we're not always anxious and worried. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible tells us that God, God made this world a perfect place. A paradise, if you would. And that because 
the human race, we all turned away from God and tried to pursue our own, our own thing. Sin came. That it wrecked it. But that God in the form of Jesus came to put it right. And Jesus suffered and bled and died and then was raised from the dead at infinite cost to himself. For you and for me and that someday he will return and he will put everything right. Now here, here's what that means. It means that no matter what you face, no matter how bad it gets, our hope should be set. That's holiness. That's, that's the way you're going to be formed into the image of Jesus. That's what holy living begins to look like. Is your hope gets set no matter what you're facing. Even if the worst, most, most people believe that the worst thing that can happen to somebody is that they die. If you've set your hope, it's funny, but the worst thing that can happen actually becomes what? Best thing possible. That's what it looks like. So your level of anxiety just begins to dissipate because you've set your hope. Because you're experiencing this holy living that God begins to have for you so that the worst becomes the best in the economy of God. Because you know everything's going to be okay at the return of our Lord. And if you're still feeling a lot of anxiety and stress and fear, here's what Peter's teaching us. It's because you're not thinking into your holiness. You're not thinking deeply into these. You're not living out the truths. You know, the truth about Christians is, is we ought to be people who are most willing to think. One of the things that kind of fascinates me about people in our culture is when they think of Christians, they think of us that, that we're not thinkers. You know, we're not thinking people. Um, I heard, and you've probably heard this sometimes, you know, people will, will do interviews with people about what do you believe about this life and after. And a lot of people these days are very, very clear that, you know, they don't believe there's a God. They don't, they don't think there's a God. And so they just go about living their lives. Well, I was reading about one guy who was doing kind of on-street interviews with people like that. But he, he would press them beyond just that first question. He would kind of keep pressing them on things like, you know, eternity and relationships and love. And he says things, so, so what you're telling me is that you basically believe that, like, things like love are just, you know, that's just a chemical reaction that happened because of the way, you know, your great ancestors survived. It was a survival of the fittest thing. And that's, that's what love is. And you believe that when you die, that's it, lights out, you know, show over, you know. And that, you know, the only thing after that is rot. So, when you think about those things, how do you handle it? And he said that most everybody that would let him get that far with them would say, well, I don't think about those things. And they say, we're not thinkers. They say, we don't think about the deep things of life. The truth is, you can't think about those things and, and not live in a constant state of deep depression and oppression if you don't think of those things through the lens of faith. And so many people don't have that lens. And that's why they live those kind of defeated lives. Friends, our faith, the peace that God promised us from our faith comes from thinking. It comes from thinking. A second place where holiness grows in us from God is in our will. You got to engage your mind first of all, absolutely. But then you got to engage your will. You've you got to move this thing in action. In verse 14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not 
be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And what he's, what he's basically saying there is he, he's talking about holiness. He's talking about the obedience as a part of holiness. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That former ignorance because he's talking to Gentiles. And they formerly didn't have the word of God, but he's saying now you have it. And then he goes on and says there's got to be engagement. Because he says you need to do this as obedient what? Does he say as obedient subjects to a king? No. As obedient children. The, 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 we're back to that relationship and how important the relationship is. How important it is to, to, to sense your, your relationship with God. Let me see if I can explain it this way. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's this really incredible story about King David. And right after King David got kind of crowned to be king over all the collective tribes together, kind of a unified nation once again, um, at the moment that happens, the um, Philistines decide they're going to invade. Because they're afraid that David will create this in, in, incredible power in Israel because he's such a, you know, a, a, a mighty military strategist that he's going to create this mighty military power. They were afraid. So immediately at, at David's coronation, they go in and they invade Israel and they try to destabilize the economy, everything. And immediately, you read, read through this, you see David now has to flee for his life and he's hiding in caves. And one of, the, one of the things that he had with him, David had some elite forces. In, in the scriptures, they call them mighty men. But they were, these were kind of like the elite forces, special forces of King David. And they were with him, going, you know, moving from cave to cave kind of deal. And one day, I, I'm, I'm imagining some here. This is my, my sanctified imagination, okay? I'm imagining that David's hot. It's, you know, it's an arid, dry place. Uh, this isn't a wet cave. The caves over there are very, very dry. And, and David starts getting thirsty. And David remembers the water in his hometown. You know, there's no better water than your hometown water. You, you know, you just get... He remembers the well in Bethlehem. And you can just kind of see him. He's probably a little depressed. He's thinking, I just made king. They've run me out of... And you can just see David just say, Man, I, I just wish I had some water from my hometown. Well, three of the men, his mighty men, hear David's sigh, this sigh. And there's no, in the story, you can go back and read it. They don't talk to each other, doesn't seem to be. You can just kind of see them look at each other. Three of these guys strap on their swords and they head out and they fight their way through enemy lines. They break into Bethlehem, which was besieged by the Philistines. They fight to get to the well. They fill up their Coleman cooler jug with water. And then they fight their way all the way back to the cave. You know, that, that's what they do. They bring this water from Bethlehem to David, and David's wrecked. He's wrecked. He's wrecked at the relationship that these men have with him. David did not give a command. David didn't even, he didn't even look at it and say, hey, Bob, Larry, Tim, how about go give me some water? He didn't make a request. David just kind of went, man, a good drink of Bethlehem water would be just, just go down so good right now. That's all David does. But because the heart of these men were so in tune to their leader, they are willing to sacrifice life and limb, everything they are, everything they have, because they love this man. David was broken over it. He fell apart. 
It literally caused him to worship God. He took the water and he pours it on the ground. And he says, I am not worthy of such devotion, God. It's all for you. See, that, that's what worship out of holiness begins to look like. It's a relational deal. And your will gets caught up in that. It's not something that you can script. It's something that, that just moves you right along. So that your heart is, it just kind of flows into this. And that leads us to the third and last thing that I want us to think about. Is that place of holiness. That third place is your heart. The, the human heart. Peter writes these words. He says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now one of the things, that phrase there, uh, conducting yourself in fear, one of the themes throughout the scriptures is the fear of God. It's both an Old Testament concept, it's also a New Testament concept. And if we, if we, we, we it's something we got to get a grip on if we're really going to understand how do we experience holiness while we're fearing God. Well, this phrase, the fear of God, is not intended for us to think about being destroyed. It's not that, it's not that kind of fear. And, and the true meaning really shows up in this passage here because it, it's, the, again, the context is judgment. The, the, the day of judgment. And... Peter goes on to say here, who's the judge? Your daddy. Your father. Judgment's coming. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take place. But when you call on him, you call on your father who judges. Now the truth is, some days, daddy's fathers can be strict. You know, some days, fathers have to put in certain standards. For protection and provision for their kids. But, but fathers, loving fathers never destroy their kids. Fathers, you know, fathers love their children. They want to they embrace them. So this isn't the kind of fear that says be afraid that you're going to be destroyed. What it means is it's, it's this sense of awe that the one who's going to judge is my dad. How to just go, I can't believe that. The judge is my dad. How cool is, is that going to be? He's your father. And we ought to be overwhelmed by that regularly. We ought to think about the end times and we ought to think, oh yeah, my dad, he's the judge, man. Here come the judge. You know, he, that's my dad. I don't have to live in fear. It's something that I should embrace incredibly. But if you go on and you look at the, how, how Peter closes this section out in verses 18 and 19, he says, knowing Knowing, when you face the judge, you need to do this knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That means original sin. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He's saying our hearts, our minds need to be engaged. We, we've got to move toward actions. Our wills need to be engaged. But the key here is our heart needs to be filled with wonder and awe and delight about what Jesus has done for us. This is the key to holy living. This is the key to having the holiness of God begin to flow through you. And I want to close with this thought. It's from, it's from Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus praying for his disciples on the night before he would be crucified. Jesus says these words. He says, for their sakes I sanctify myself. That they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. Not just these disciples. He's looking at his disciples. But 
For those who also believe in me through their word. You know who that is? Us. That's us. Those who are in Christ who believe this. See, Jesus, before, before the night before he dies, he makes these, this amazing prayer, this amazing statement. He's talking to God the Father and he says, he's, he's looking at his disciples. He said, Dad, Father, I'm going to sanctify myself. I'm going to sanctify myself for their sake. I'm going to sanctify myself so that they can be sanctified. What does sanctity mean? Set apart, holy. Jesus is saying, I'm doing this myself. I'm sanctifying myself for their sake. Jesus isn't saying, well, hey dad, so that you'll save them, I'll be more moral. Jesus was already perfectly moral. You know, he's saying, I'm, I'm going to set myself apart for them. I'm going to give it all for them. I am going to apply my whole life to them. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be forsaken by you for them. I am sanctifying myself so that they might be sanctified. So that they could be holy. And Jesus does this because he loves us. And he wants us to know the joy of, of the freedom that we could live in if we're healed from kind of the claustrophobia of living for ourselves, being pressed into that. From the, be healed from the feebleness of weak spirits. Be healed from all of that, just spiraling down in and on, upon ourselves. To be set free, to experience life living holy. Do you know that I'm, I'm getting to do this? Instead, instead of this life of saying, what about them? Look, look what they get. How come I don't get to live like that? You know, instead of that, we get away from all that self-centered thinking. We just, we're focused on Jesus. And we're seeing how much Jesus loved us and how he lived for us. See, in the Old Testament, holiness, holiness was really all about awe. The awe of God. In the New Testament, the, the holiness of Jesus is all about beauty. It's about how gorgeous and beautiful Jesus is. What, what he did for you and me. And what Peter is trying to draw us into is we need to think on that. We need to let all of our actions, our will flow through that. And we need to let our hearts be enraptured. By the beauty of Jesus' sanctification of himself. Because here's the deal, friends. To the degree, to the degree that you give yourself away to him and that vision of what he paid for you, to the degree that you give yourself into that, it will be the degree to which you will experience the holiness that God has planned for you now. That's the vision you got to continually give yourself. The beautiful, gorgeous vision of Jesus sanctifying himself for you will be the degree at which you will experience the beauty and life of God. So here's the deal. We have got to believe it so deeply that it moves us to act it out, to live it out, out of the outflow of a heart that is focused on his beauty and wonder of the cross and the resurrection and knowing that is our hope. We have to set our hope there. That's what makes us holy. Let's pray. Father, we come right now in the name of Jesus. And, and God, when we say that to you right now, we're talking about the beauty 
We're talking about the gorgeous sacrifice. We're talking about the wonder of the resurrection. Jesus being seated at the right hand of you, Father, right now, making intercession. We're talking about the beauty of that. And Father, when we read about holiness, oftentimes we don't think that's possible for us, but my prayer for myself and my friends today is that we will see it's deeply relational, that it's, that holiness is about who you are as our personal God. The great plans that you have for us to experience life now. So God, I pray for how we think. God, our thinking can get so distorted because of the stuff of this world. And I'm asking you for healing to come now. God, some of us have been through such pain and suffering that our, the truth has been distorted and hidden from us. And so God, right now in Jesus' name, I'm asking for breakthrough for someone in this room whose heart is so broken that they can't think clearly about who you are. Protect their minds, God. Set them free. Jesus, reveal yourself there. You need to receive that today. Lord, there are others of us who we, we spend lots of time hearing and reading your word, but we don't, we don't set our lives to act on it, to live it out so that we can experience the gift of, of your holiness manifest in our daily walk in our daily lives where we live, work, and play. So God, we come now submitting our wills to you. And oh God, we pray that you would begin forging deeper and deeper in us as we seek it, as we pursue it, that glorious vision of the death, burial, and resurrection being for us, for me, so that we can live in power now. So God, we come. We come understanding that all of this is rooted in our belief, will we trust you? Will we believe in such a way that we set our hope on you, on your promises, on who you are? God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Stir our belief to action so that our hearts give sacrificially and generously. Stir our belief so that we give of our time and our talents. Stir our beliefs, God, so we walk with you in experiential ways this coming week. Help us now as we worship. Experience holiness in you. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9.30 or 11 o'clock services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.